Hi, oh, g'day fuzzies. How are you feeling today? Are you feeling adequate? How are you happy in your skin? Are you feeling comfortable? Would you like to run faster, see further, think faster in this hyper-competitive world? Maybe you just like to be able to connect better to your social network, maybe through a device that's not on your mobile phone, maybe one that's more intimately connected to your body. And today we're going to be exploring these themes here on Fuzzy Logic because we have a couple of very special guests. Our first guest today is Bruce McCabe, who is the author of this thriller. And I've got to say this really ripping good yarn called Skin Job. Good morning, Bruce. Good morning, Rod. And joining us also in the studio is Amon. Good morning, Amon. Good morning, Rod. And shortly, we're going to be joined also by David Dufty, who's author of that fascinating story, The Philip K. Dick Android Lost in Transit. And that's the story about an animatronic head that was developed in the labs in the United States and then subsequently went missing on the aeroplane. So we're going to be exploring today the theme of technology and humans and how we work together. Now, Bruce, I haven't had the opportunity to read the whole book, but last night I read the opening part, and what really struck me was it's set in a futuristic world, not that far off, but we're in a world where the technology is really advanced, but somehow we don't control the world. It's still chaotic for some reason. Is that the sort of sense that you had when you wrote it? Yeah. Um, it's not that far off. In my mind, and I never put a date exactly on the uh, time frame deliberately, but in my mind I'm thinking around 15 years out. And um, the thing is, if you look at what's happened to us in the last 15 years and how much change has happened through technology, um, it's mind-blowing. And so 15 years out is actually quite a stretch in terms of, what might be happening and, and where we might go. And chaotic isn't a bad word because it's certainly not controlled or planned. We're kind of arriving in places because technology is sort of just exploding onto the scene. It's not as if we're all sort of making a nice collective decision about yeah, where we're going. Is, is this kind of fantasy of control that if we're smart enough with the wires and the bits and, and the bobs that somehow we can control the world, but yet out there the world is fundamentally not controllable? Uh, it is fundamentally not controllable. I, I do see that as a fantasy. Um, and you only have to look at things like, you know, cyber law and um, copyright law and uh, uh, all, all of the things happening there, even even the book industry itself, the chaos that's in, you know. You, you can put all the controls around it you like and then someone comes on the scene and just says, well, you know, you can't control where my bits flow over what types and how they go, um, they're just going to go there. Um, I remember Nick Negroponte um, in his, his book, uh, what was it, Being, Being Digital, I think it was called, but he had this wonderful line in there in the whole chapter entitled, Bits Are Bits. And it doesn't matter sort of whether they're bits for a movie or an image or a telephone call, you know, they're just bits, so how do you control them? It's a bit like sort of holding back the sea. You can't really control these things. And, of course, our, you know, so I just see legislation and its perpetual catch-up now as a metaphor for society. Mm. Well, the particular chaos you paint is a, a scenario that all of us will be familiar with today. And Do you want to talk us through the premise of the novel? Yeah. Um, so, look, at its heart, it's, it's a thriller. It's a whodunit Um there's, there's a bombing in San Francisco and it's, it's set against the backdrop of quite a lot of social conflict. And, and so that's, that's the, you know, the, the main plot. It follows um, the, the, the protagonist is a, uh, uh, an FBI agent in, in the near future and I think that'll be quite different. But the backdrop um, against the, which the yarn is, is set is probably where all the, you know, all the science interest comes in. And there's two or three big ideas, I guess, behind it. One is, where are we going with surveillance? You know, and all this stuff on PRISM during the week with surveillance is very timely because uh, I've kind of added uh, some of the dimensions I see as quite inevitable in police surveillance. 
frightening, but quite inevitable. Yes, it's, it's all very timely, isn't it, with the uh, police and the secret services peering into our intimate lives. We'll get into that theme a little bit more later on, but what, what motivated you to write this story in the first place? Uh, the, the original germ of the idea came when, um, because what I'd been doing professionally for 20 years is watching emerging technologies and working with corporations and governments on what they mean to, to people and, 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 uh, and business. It came when I attended a demonstration of some software that was being used by insurance companies in their call centre. And it was what they called voice stress detection software. And it listened in on the phone call when a claimant was calling the insurance call centre to make a claim. And when it thought they might not be telling the entire truth, it sounded a little beep in the operator's ear. So it was effectively lie detection embedded in the call centre. Um, and I found that kind of spooky. Uh, and the first question was, are you telling your customers you're using this? But I saw it demonstrated. It was very, very powerful. And I thought at the time, geez, what happens when that stuff is embedded in the handset, which it inevitably will be if we, we look at where computing is going and that sort of thing. And then some years later, I saw it deployed. Uh, when I say saw it, I read about it deployed. Um, in Afghanistan in handheld units, experimentally, and not very good units, but they were deployed and they were tried, handheld lie detectors in the field. And they really drove me to say, well, hang on, what happens when a police officer puts one of those under your nose sometime in the future? As, as I think is quite inevitable. Well, we, we started our conversation talking about chaos and trying to control chaos. And perhaps what you're describing is the security forces, the governments trying to control chaos in some way. Is it actually inherently a doable thing, do you think? Well, you can take either a pessimistic or an optimistic view, and I think it's a personal choice. Um, I think chaos is just reality, and uh, we have sort of muddled through chaos as a society for a long time, and we go through some pretty bad periods occasionally, but we do tend to come out the other end. So, yes, I see it as uncontrollable, but I don't see it as something that leads to our doom necessarily. I, I just see it as leading to periods of quite considerable challenge. Yep. <laughs> Yes. We, we, well, we're using the word control, and I think perhaps partly what we're talking about here is who's controlling it? Is it us? Is it them? Is it some anonymous agent sitting behind the glass? Or is it the corporation, perhaps, who wants to make money from you? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and the corporations, um, I think, play a big role. The money makers, the, the commerce defines very much what's going on. You look at Facebook and Google and how they're changing our lives, and, of course, that's being driven by commercial interests and in inventiveness around that. And it's completely changing and revolutionising the way we live today. Um, so that's, that's sort of this huge force. It's not a, a choice made just by the citizens or their government representatives. It's made so, by these, these complex commercial forces. So you, you've set the novel in probably what looks like not the too distant future. Mm. Do, you, do you think the technologies you talk about in the book are inherently doable? Are they achievable? Perhaps before we go into that part, maybe you can explain a little bit more about some of the specific technologies that you have without giving away any great plot points, oh, of sure, course. Sure. So uh, one of the obvious ones that I mentioned there is lie detection, handheld lie detection. Um, uh, another is there's, a, there's a, a very strong exploration of the future of sexuality and where, the, um, where Silicon Valley takes cyber sex, if you like, and what that might do to us as human beings. Um, and there I've, I've taken what is a more uh, common plot point in movie making and that sort of thing, the idea of sexualized robotics um, and, and haptic devices that engage you know, the, the, the senses and this sort of thing. Um, and, and finally, I've, I've really looked at religion and the application of social networking in, in the extreme, if you like, from today's point of view to, to a future religion. How would you really construct a religion well if you were doing it today and if you were fairly commercially minded as some religions are so every technology in the book exists um they're all things i've seen in the labs they're all existent but they're obviously i've extrapolated out to the the, the um the capability and, and and in the case of the um you know the title is named skin job because that's the pejorative form for the uh uh the roboticized sex dolls in this uh, in this novel uh, and indeed, Philip K. Dick 
uh, as we'll probably get on to later on, but use that term uh, and uh, in um, do, do androids dream of electric sheep? That's probably the biggest stretch when I was looking at where that technology would go. And I've tried to paint a realistic portrait of what we might expect in 15 years, um, which won't necessarily be, you know, what we might expect in a movie like Blade Runner. It might be something a little simpler. Uh, there's something about the human psyche, do you think, where we really readily project humanity on things that are actually not human at all? We can look in the bottom of a teacup and see the random shapes, the tea leaves, and project that onto some religious figure. And there's, of course, the great Lisa experiment, that which those of us who know about the history of artificial intelligence uh, will know about. Can you tell us a bit about that one? Uh, you'll have to elaborate on the Lisa. Oh, oh, the, the, the Lisa. The Lisa one was, you know, the so-called psychoanalyst program. It was a very simple AI program with a bit of uh, intelligent response, and people started to pour their secrets into this thing. Ah, uh, the interactive one online where they have a conversation. Which yeah. Is, yeah. So the Turing test. Uh, it, it's a little bit like a Turing test. Yeah. So, is there something about the human psyche that uh, makes us prone to readily accepting technologies, inverted commas, human in some way? I, well, I think there's something inherently in our psyche about accepting technology as part of uh, internalizing and making it part of what we do and who we are and how we live. Um, whether we assign it human qualities, I think we're on the verge of that. You know, I mean, we, we sort of this idea of a Siri on a phone or some sort of voice interface, we, we sort of, we're just tinkering with it, I think, in our daily lives. But yes, in terms of where we're going, um, I think we're going to be in very interesting territory when you look at these ultra-realistic personalities and avatars. And, you know, if you're on an online help desk and the avatar is extremely realistic, then, hey, you're just going to converse with it and, and work with it as if it's a human being. It's just a natural part of who we are. So there's some sort of projection going on. Now, in, in the book, you, you talk about policemen holding a polygraph lie detector under your nose as you speak. Is, is that a threatening sort of a possibility, do you think? I think it's very frightening. From a social perspective, it'll be extraordinarily challenging. But I'll tell you why I think it's inevitable. Um, not just because I look at sort of Moore's Law and the next three or four generations of chips and the miniaturisation and so forth, and you think, gosh, well, there's no problem putting um, the biometric scanners in a very small device, so the voice analysis and uh, the iris dilation analysis and the heat flush analysis from the face. You can put those thing, uh, things into a small device with lots of cameras and so forth, and, and that will happen. But also because a few years ago, there was a big study conducted by Lockheed Martin where they got, I think, about 30 police agencies across the US and conducted interviews of what technologies they'd like to see in the next couple of years and then, and then a bit further out. And, and top of the list for a bit further out was we'd like handheld polygraph, um, which just fascinated me. You know, they're already, if they, if, if they just dig into what they want, the police officers um, are sitting there going, that's actually top of the list of what we'd love to have, you know. And it's not necessarily they, that they want perfection, but they want some instrument to make the street policing more uh, rapid. Um, you think of the Boston bombings, for example, to be able to triage people near the scene really quickly to see whether they may or may not be involved. Um, it's a very powerful idea. Yes, well, we, we talked about projecting and people projecting emotionally onto these devices. Now, the police themselves might project onto these devices some illusion of correctness. Correct. I mean, what's the definition of truth, for example? Are you lying? How do you say what a lie is? Exactly. And that's where it gets really, really interesting. Because right now, these things are um, quite fallible. Um, so what was deployed in Afghanistan, I think, was something like 85% accurate. Uh, now, 85% isn't, isn't nearly good enough when the person asking the questions is holding an M16 and the other guy is being asked about the roadside bomb. You know, you, you get it wrong. It might, there might be a fatality. Involved. Um, but then you go further and say, what's the nature of truth? And it's obviously a subjective thing. It's dependent on the person and what they believe when they answer the question. 
It, it kind of reminds me of DNA evidence used in court and it gives the illusion of being correct and then somehow the legal system has to cope with something. Well, okay, they might have found that DNA trace, but how do you interpret that? Yeah, and, and almost even with DNA, what most people don't know is that the testing is fallible. You know, <laughs> there is some, as with all science, there's some potential for error or observational error and, you know, you just don't have 100% um, probability you know you, you, it just doesn't exist so um everything is slightly nuanced and when it comes to truth telling or lying of course if you wish to catch people in a lie and you're a police officer or some intimidating figure then ultimately you can do it with anybody because everybody's got something they want to hide um or or they you know they just don't wish to make public and so if you wish to catch somebody lying and then get them in a bit of a vicious circle with a uh, um, you know, you, you end up being able to lock them up overnight or whatever. Um, it's quite achievable. So when you get something that makes uh, an instrument, if you like, that allows you to, to probe someone and put them on the spot and, 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 and visually show them, oh, look, you're, you're lying or you're, you're telling the truth, that's going to be immensely socially challenging. Um, and how we use that sort of instrument um, even if it's a little bit powerful, you know, just how we use it, it's going to be very challenging. Now, Bruce, um, it's Eamon uh, here. I, um, <clears throat> so I just think that that's a, a very important point I'll be making there just now, but um, as I could see it, there's probably just a couple of other issues there. Uh, the first being how we as human beings could uh, decide, well, that is the truth, whether or not that that's actually correct, um, we'd we would always have our subjective opinions. Well, whether or not that is actually factual, because um, of other beliefs and what have you. But also, if authorities are so bent on getting a certain outcome that truth can be some well so-called truth and dare I may say it, enlightenment can be manipulated to um, create a certain outcome, uh, it, wouldn't that also be um, of great concern as well? Uh, well, yes, and, and not only a great concern, but it's, it's an, another, another inevitability. If you look at a situation um, like the Boston bombings uh, recently, the amount of pressure placed on the officer or officers on the spot to get a rapid outcome is, is just enormous, and, and it can cloud judgment. It can, um, uh, you know, if, 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 if someone believes someone is guilty they can project that onto the situation and it can skew the way they handle the situation and and so yeah truth is where you find it and lies will be where you find them you know if you wish to find a lie because you're really looking hard so yes um my answer, so. well here on fuzzy logic we're exploring some of the excitements in our future with what we're going to do with our bodies and technology and our guest today is bruce mccabe who is the author of skin job and we later, in a moment, we might talk about some of the perhaps more exciting parts, the sex and religion and how that fits in with the future in technology. <laughs> and to take us into a break, I think we might go to, here's a track from oh, the B-52s, The Love Shack, seems appropriate to me, here on Fuzzy Logic. Oh, yes, that's the Love Shack from the B-52s. And I can't think of a better way to segue into the next part of our conversation here because the Love Shack is where we're at here on 2XX and the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. And my guest today is Bruce McCabe, who is the author of this fascinating novel, and I've got to say a ripping good yarn if I can get to the rest of it, called Skin Job. And just joining us in the studio now is we have a second author... We've got uh, David Dufty here, and David is the author of this fascinating book that he wrote a couple of years ago called Lost in Transit, The Strange Story of a Philip K. Dick Android, published by Melbourne University Press. G'day, right. David. Hi, Rod. Pleased to be here again. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> we're good, and I'll give you a moment to compose yourself because you just rushed in, but uh, we're going to talk to Bruce now about... Dolls and sex, and in the book, Bruce, there are sex dolls. What are they like? <laughs> so now we get to the, the juicy stuff. <laughs> and hello, David. I can't wait to hear more about this story with the, yeah, the Philip K. Dick side of it. Um, um, yeah, I, 
I, you know, I, I took the approach, as with everything with technology and in the writing, of looking at what is there today and where would it likely go and what would we, you know, what would the commercial people behind these things actually do to make money? And, of course, the thing with robots today um, is they're horrendously expensive uh, for a lot of things. You know, general-purpose robots are often much more expensive than employing somebody cheaply to do the same sorts of tasks and, and so forth. So robots are a comp- compromise always between, you know, simplicity and specialisation and capability and, and general purpose stuff which costs much more money, you know. Um, uh, so when it comes to sex, of course, we only have to look at movies like Lars and the Real Doll or whatever to know that there's a pretty vibrant sex doll industry out there and, you know, it's, they're, they're hyper-realistic and so forth. So I painted a picture of what might happen when we add a bit of mechatronics to that and we add a little bit of AI and so forth. And, and you know, again, the, the primary task, it won't be like Stefford wives, they won't, they won't be cooking for you. I, I think there will be a sex industry um, which, which will uh, take what we do with virtual sex today and pornography online today and actually put it in physical form effectively. Um, so what will they be like? Um, Idealised? <laughs> Whatever. I mean, not necessarily realistic. Uh, in any form and flavour that people wish, um, uh, the 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 uh, the big difference between I think the fantasy people have written about in the past and what I wrote about in Skin Job was I've written about them being deployed almost in brothels, um, effectively um, uh, rented by the hour rather than owned, because I don't think economically it would be feasible to be owning your own unless you're a very wealthy person. Um, so rented by the hour with a whole industry supporting that, um, an entertainment industry. So perhaps the future of sex shops might involve some of that sort of activity. Not particularly intelligent, just intelligent enough to be realistic and, and not very spooky in performing uh, the uh, customary functions. It sounds like a particularly male thing, is it? And again, you know, if I look at the industry today and where that is there's a mixture obviously of male and women and, and no it's not just just male I think there'll be there, there's an industry for both but obviously um, if we look at historical patterns of behaviour then the industry will be primarily male um, or oriented towards male customers well we already have that's a really interesting look at the future and I think you're right it's it's whenever I say well, I, I've mentioned this in conversation recently, and you say that this this thing this is coming. It's it's gonna it's going to arrive at some point or other. People laugh. I don't know if that's because they don't actually believe it or they think it's wishful thinking on my part. But yeah, it's absolutely coming, and we can even see the rudiments of it in terms of today. I mean, there's there there are machines that that assist. You know, there are vibrators and so forth. So which is yeah. kind of maybe a sort of a, a sort of nascent tension. So it's not like we don't have machines available in human society that do that kind of thing Indeed. already. Indeed. And I think it's inevitable also from a purely commercial perspective. If you look at so much of the innovation that's taken place in the, uh, these early years of the internet, um, of course, a lot, so much of it's driven by the money being made in pornography, which is considerable. And so, uh, you know, sex sells. And, uh, and so it will drive innovation. Uh, and there will be applications for, uh, for all these technologies. So. So a, a lot of it is about the profit motive, of course. Yeah. And do you, do you see the commercial... We, like we talked about government spying on us and you mentioned the PRISM program, which has got some publicity lately about how the government is looking at our emails and our telephone calls and so on, and maybe they're even listening to us right now. But, but there's also a commercial aspect here. There's money to be made. How much of the theme is that brought out in your book... Bruce? Yeah, there's very strong commercial themes in everything, including religion, which I'm sure we'll talk about soon. But, um, uh, you know, I see this, the, the future as being having some quite considerable social conflict around these sorts of devices. I've painted a picture of sex dolls that, as they get more realistic, and more importantly, as they engage all of our senses. So it's no longer just a virtual experience. It's actually a physical experience. Then I think we'll see more abhorrent behaviour um, we, we'll you know people indulge their fantasies but they're indulging them in physical form I think their expectations of what sex should be with a real partner might change and so forth so that I think will cause a lot of conflict mm. and um, 
uh, I've, I've painted a picture of quite a divided society um, in, in terms of quite, quite violent debate and protest over where, where this takes Yes, I can imagine the divisions forming in society and maybe reality isn't so good. Maybe these things are better than reality, and which is kind of a Philip K. Dickey, uh, pardon my use of the word there, <laughs> theme. I think the word is Dickian. For the, Dickian. Yeah. Uh, well, because uh, we, we've got David Dufty in the studio with us now and David wrote this fascinating book about the Philip K. Dick android. And for the benefit of those who haven't heard this story before, David, can you reprise that story? for us? Sure, just briefly uh, some, uh, there was a team, a consortium from different uh, universities in America uh, a few years ago that, that uh, constructed an a android replica of Philip K. Dick and then they had the, the, who, if you don't know, I mean I'm sure you do Bruce, but for any, anybody listening who doesn't know, uh, he, he was a, uh, a sort of a, a legendary science fiction writer who died in 1982 and he wrote uh, very sort of dystopian stories about the future and uh, police states and paranormal and robots and, 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 and reality twisting. And uh, anyway, so they developed this, uh, and he's also behind many of the science fiction movies, you've, uh, no like doubt. Blade, Blade Runner and Blade, so on. Oh, and Minority Report, Total Recall, all kinds of stuff. But anyway, and so anyway, they developed this thing, but it, uh, it was uh, lost or stolen uh, en route to uh, San Francisco and has never been seen since. So I wrote a book about that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's, it's the story of the Philip Kedick android. So this was a, an animatronic head and it was connected to some artificial intelligence, a couple of artificial intelligence machines, right? Which yes, did, a did whole bank of machines and it had eyes and everything and it could hold a conversation uh, with you in real time just as uh, I, you and I are. We're all having a conversation now. The, the Philip Kedick android, if it was here, would, would have been able to join in. Uh, and so, yes, you could go into the room. It had a specially designed room that you could enter and, and have this experience, this immersive uh, interactive experience with this uh, thing that looked exactly like the dead science fiction writer. And it had a facial recognition. Yep, could tell who you were. You'd walk into the room and it'd go, hi, Rod. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, this is amazing. And this is current technology, Bruce. Yep. This is, in yep. fact, actually even a few years ago now, I guess, David. And it used to form its responses to your questions using a database of everything that Philip K. Dick had ever said that we had yeah, on record. Is that right? That's right. Because conversational, conversational AI is actually pretty tricky. Uh, and so, luckily, uh, Philip K. Dick has, there's like just. Re, uh, you, you wouldn't it, mind-bogglingly large amounts of, of transcripts of, of conversations that he's had with people just for various reasons like he let people into his house with tape recorders and stuff so they were able to sort of construct this AI out of this enormous database of, of conversations so Bruce does this happen in the novel that one of your characters goes to uh, shall we say an encounter <laughs> with one of these skin job replicas and it recognises the person and says, oh, so how are you today? And oh, would you want to do that, what we did last time? <laughs> <laughs> well, absolutely. There's a recognition um, ability there. And, and I really thought hard about this aspect because it's one thing to do all those things. It's quite another to do them realistically enough that you're engaged sexually. <laughs> um, you don't want to have, there's a term, you know, you don't want to have something slightly odd about this thing talking to you because it's spooky and you don't want spooky if you're wanting to be sexually around <laughs> so so uh, yes there's there's a lot of that and a lot of sort of playing with what what that might you know what what might be done to achieve that to, to, to make it you know really a realistic immersive experience yes i think i think you might be alluding to uh, what david and i discussed in the previous interview the so-called uncanny valley yes. where, where something's near exactly. enough to be there's a point at which stuff becomes too realistic and we just find that a little bit creepy yes there's just something odd that we can't put our finger on but uh you don't you certainly don't want that sort of feeling going on if you're trying to be aroused so um you know i i, I thought that was amusing to play with it and and think about what people might do to mitigate against. Well, I'm now, now I'm imagining a, a little encounter with the, these two characters, one human, one not human, and the character then says, the earth moved for me. That was a religious experience. That's a segue, by the way, Bruce. <laughs> a very clever one. <laughs> <laughs> because you... Uh, you, you also bring the, the the topic of religion into this, and so what's what's what is the the religion and connection apart from that uh, or, or the the climactic uh, um, result of a human android 
Oh, dear. You might get re-rated on this show soon. Be careful. It's interesting. Um, so, well, there is a connection between sex and religion, and, and there's certainly one drawn in the book in the sense that religion is so much about community. And that's the biggest, one of the biggest assets about, uh, of, of any religion is the community it gives you. And that's, that's you know, well-researched and widely written about. And it's one of the most powerful positive aspects of religion. Um, but, of course, uh, the extension of that is a lot of people meet their marital partners and end up dating people from their churches and so forth. Um, so there's that sexual element of, you know, religion is, is, is one path to fulfillment there. Um, what I've done is I've taken that out and said, well, hang on, what if you started a religion today and you're fairly ruthless about the commercial side as you know a, a, a proportion of religions are that they're interested in in uh, uh, making money and uh, you know what would you do and one of the things you'd really do is focus so heavily on community and all the tools available to engage people in your congregation to one another and, and get them to meet you know think of a, a dating service on steroids RSVP you know plus uh, 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 Facebook uh, multiplied by, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, a religious factor as well. And then you could have an enormously powerful mechanism for bringing people into the fold, if you like, and giving them fulfillment, getting them to, um, uh, uh, to meet their, uh, or, or introducing them uh, automatically or otherwise to uh, compatible people. Um, so, yeah, the religion I painted um, is very much, you know, think of your... Uh, the biggest and most aggressive uh, fundamentalist Christian uh, church, and then um, marry them to Facebook, and and uh, and give each follower a um, a small wireless device, so they're always connected to the congregation, and uh, and see what happens. Uh, this is fascinating stuff, Bruce. Now, just for our listeners, our guest today is Bruce McCabe, who is the author of a fascinating book called Skin Job, and David Dufty, the author of the Philip K. Dick Android Lost in Transit. Bruce, what you seem to be describing is the human desire to fulfil our urges. There are a lot of unsatisfied need that somehow we're going to try and fill these gaps with technology. So we've talked about addressing the need for stability and, and chaos and controlling the world in some way. We've talked about our urge for our uh, venal sex desires yep. and, and our urge perhaps for something a little more spiritual even, something that uh, you know, a, a source of fulfilment <clears throat> and perhaps more basically urge to make a profit yes is this what you see we're doing with technology that, that, that we're somehow trying to satisfy all these needs in some way absolutely because those are the perennial we as biological organisms we adapt a little bit you know there's good research to show our brain adapts a little bit we adapt a little bit over time we are evolving to match technology but very very slowly uh, effectively our sex drive our need for community and friendship and our uh, desire to, to get ahead, uh, you know, it, it, with, with uh, business or, 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 you know, ahead of our peers and, and have what the others have, these are perennial to me. So that, that means they'll, they drive a lot of what happens in the book and where I think society will go. And they also offer perennial avenues for exploitation. If people need community, you know, and they're, they're, they're vulnerable... Um, they're ripe for exploitation uh, by a church or by a sexual industry or, or, or something else. So there's a very strong, uh, serious, I guess, message. If there is a serious message in this book, uh, you know, I think there's a couple, but one of them is that uh, there's a strong message of just how many new avenues there are to exploit uh, the vulnerable. David, do you, do you get the sense this is uh, an unreachable, you know, an impossible drive in humans that we, we have this kind of little fantasy that all of our worlds will be a better place if we can only we manage to get the technology good enough? Yeah, well, there's this, there's, there is a sort of a strand in, in, in modern thinking that's, I guess you'd call it techno-optimist or techno-futurist or whatever, it's where basically it's, 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 it's the great new world of, of technology and and I think one of the things that isn't taken into it, yes, of course, we'll always use technology to meet any needs that we can if, if, it's, if it's convenient. Um, but one thing, it's interesting, the religion thing, because it's... Uh, it, 
people have a, a, a need for, to find meaning and I think religions arise spontaneously um, and that's not really something that's taken into account I think a lot of the time and I don't think it's the case that technology is going to uh, take um, is going to f- certainly fulfill fulfill that although uh, I was thinking in terms of like all the needs that we meet that's one of the things with uh, modern online games and so forth is they they I think they they're so addictive for some people because they meet in a virtual sense they meet so many needs especially you know some of these games like a friend of mine whose son is really addicted to like uh, Minecraft was telling me all the things that it does you've got adventuring and you've got building stuff and you've got exploring stuff and all it just basically any it's a boys Nirvana, and mm-hmm. so it's it's fulfilling all of these. It's actually not fulfilling the needs, but it's like it's 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 uh, creating the illusion that all your needs are filled. Ah, you you kind of remind me of this game that, that caused a lot of controversy a few years ago, Carmageddon, and, and Bruce with your characters as well, your android characters, mm-hmm. that you can go and engage in these fantasies and, and do these things. And what's the moral consequences of what you're doing? You can you can go and have sex in whatever form you want, yeah. but it's a machine. So go for it. Exactly. Or, or it's only a virtual world. Go, go for it. Exactly. Is, is there really a, a moral implication, do you think? I mean, is it okay I, for us to do this in a so-called fantasy world when it's not for real? I seriously think there is a, a, a very, very big um, uh, downside to that. We can just sort of move down a trajectory progressively and end up where we don't want to be. And we can take kids gaming today and say, gosh, there's a lot of kids that end up with quite serious problems because they're spending all their time online and they're not socialising in the real world and so forth and that's a small metaphor but in the sexual industry there's so much debate right now about the consequences of pornography and increasingly extreme pornography and exposure to that and really good research being done in different geographies conflicting research by the way it doesn't all you know a lot of it points to no link between violent pornography and violence against women but but it's worrying you know um so that's sort of out there, and what I've done is said, well, hang on, if you're going to be engaging sex with mechanised dolls, which, which fully engage the senses, and if the industry supplying them is encouraging you to have more extreme, or act out, actually act out your darkest and most violent sexual fantasy, and just leading you down a path of, well, hang on, you've had that extreme experience, what about a more extreme experience, then... Won't that really change us as people? You know, isn't there a really dangerous potential consequence to that? And I think when you're engaging someone physically, you know, the, the danger is probably far greater, that you're really going to have some changes in sexual behaviour and, and changes to the way mm. men... This really strikes me as, as a real Philip K. Dick kind of thing because here we're blurring the line between what's fantasy, what's imagined, what's real and not real. That That's an important part of uh, Philip K. Dick's writing, is it not, David? That's right, and trying to figure out uh, what's real and what isn't. And when you start blurring the you know the yep. lines, which, which which is what happens, then it get, can get very confusing. And so I think there's a little bit of sort of naive, uh, sort of naive optimism in a sense that people go, oh, people, everybody can tell the difference between, you know, fantasy and reality and what's real and what's online and what, I'm not so I'm not so sure because the constant is you and so it's all about um, modifying your own behaviours and what sort of behaviours you you become accustomed to and what sort of life you become accustomed to living well, maybe you can remind the listener of the total recall plot because that's got an element of this on it does it not? oh yes well the entire the entire concept is um, basically that you instead of going on holidays um, you basically just have a memory. You go to a go to a little local lab, and some technician implants a memory of having gone on a holiday. <laughs> so that's the that's that's the basic concept. And so then they then the next level is well, if you're going to do that, you might why just have a holiday at the beach? You might as well make it a holiday about being a secret agent or something like that. And so that's the, hence that's the start of the movie. Um, the character goes. And obviously, I I I do believe it comes from that that novel series. Um, we can re- remember it for you wholesale um, yeah. yeah that's right so yeah so then you know uh, that's the start of the movie uh, Total Recall <laughs> he had a, a great mind that man I mean every one of his books takes you down a, a very thought provoking journey like that. Yeah, yes, he was an inter- interesting character, right? and I'd like to reassure all our listeners that what you're hearing today is real, it's not invented, you're not the result of some <laughs> silicon uh, <laughs> drug-induced coma or fantasy, 
here on Fuzzy Logic, and our guest today is Bruce McCabe, author of Skin Job, and David Dufty, author of the Philip K. Dick Android story, and I think we might break to a quick track, and here's a classic one from the Moody Blues. If I press the right button, it's Send Me No Wine. Oh, hang on, I've got to press the right button. And it's not going to do it. Oh, I think we might just go to this one instead. No. Okay, the technology's not going to talk to us. We'll just continue our conversation. <laughs> <laughs> the technology is letting us down. Uh, the technology. Well, uh, maybe, maybe Bruce, this is a good little segue into our uh, next theme here because what happens when it goes wrong? So we, we trust ourselves, we trust our sexual gratification, our police forces and so on. But uh, what, are the, what are the risks in the technology that uh, it fails? Who's responsible? Yeah, <laughs> well... Exactly, and, and, and who's responsible gets impossible to answer, doesn't it? Because you've got so many people in the chain. So if you take that lie detector technology that I'm writing about, there's a manufacturer involved, and then there's someone in the police department who's procuring and deploying those devices and you know, presumably training people to use them properly. And then there's the guy in the field who's going to choose how he uses it. And, um, you know, you're right. And there's so many opportunities to... Uh, exploit even, say, perfect technology in unusual ways to get your own your own in. So, so one of the scenarios I've spent a bit of time on is what happens when a police officer really decides he knows the man he wants to get. You know, he's and and so he's got this amazingly powerful instrument with a, with a handheld polygraph. And and you know, I've written it as if it's extremely accurate, near, nearly perfect in the book. But uh, uh, you can manipulate that sort of technology. You could. Uh, uh, if you want to target someone, you could perhaps go and interview some of their friends first. And there are various new avenues to, um, to, yeah. to, to, to for it to go wrong. <laughs> and, and, and also, that's a really interesting. I thought it was really interesting what you were saying about lie detectors, because it also it, it's also uh, about the fact that people are very trusting of technologies and, and often yeah. too trusting. And it's the same thing with um, with DNA. I mean, there's uh, there's, a, there's a, a, a drip of the sporadic stories of people who've you know been wrongly convicted because of DNA. And when you look at the circumstantial evidence, apart from the DNA, you know they were in a different city, they were watching TV with friends, all this stuff that they, they, they couldn't possibly have done it. But the DNA is enough, and then they'll get nailed. Yeah. And so people trust. It, it, and that's, I guess, the thing about lie detectors as well. But it's, it's not so much will it be abused as will it be trusted too much. Exactly. I, I agree. And there's a, I put a quote in in the beginning of the book in the, in the, in the, the prologue, if you're right. There's a quote there from Scientific American, and it's a real one from April 2011. And it's, With the growing availability of images that can describe the state of someone's brain, attorneys are increasingly asking judges to admit these scans in evidence to demonstrate, say, that a defendant is not guilty by reason of insanity or that a witness is telling the truth. So right now, the courts in the US are facing, you know, people that want to introduce these things and say, we, we want to put them in as evidence. And, and of course, a jury's going to sit there and say, gosh, the professor of neuroscience at uh, MIT says that this is good technology or, or, or whatever. And it may well be good tech technology. And it might be good. <laughs> but it's not perfect. That's right. Yeah, but we're, we're putting a lot on juries, aren't we? Because let's say so the average jury is for well, the jury of people with varying levels of qualifications and so on. And some of this stuff is pretty pretty complicated and, and there's a lot of nuances of what we're talking about here. How, how do you interpret this evidence and there's all this wriggle room? Were you really having an encounter with a skin job or were you really in the supermarket with a, with a handgun? <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and, um, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I just don't know the answers of the juries because I know that right now um, there's a lot of people in the legal system that throw up their hands in exasperation yeah. over the what, what uh, uh, David just mentioned, the, the um, overconfidence in DNA uh, by juries, the, the tendency to take it as gospel when they hear that, oh, well, that's it, you know, guilty. Um, well, that's a real problem already. And, and you can blame uh, uh, CSI, apparently, for a lot of that. Yes, I have, I have interviewed uh, some forensics uh, senior people and the, their frustration with the CSI effect uh, is, is definite. Uh, but now what happened in a moment ago I was talking about being in a supermarket with a handgun which I've never done but but what if I was an android 
who's responsible then? So what's the what, oh. what's the liability there? I'll uh, ask you, Bruce, and then David. Gosh, that's a good one. That that brings to mind some of those Asimov, you know, laws of robotics uh, type uh, novels that he wrote. These wonderful, wonderful conundrums about who's guilty and 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 what should be done and what's the moral obligation of the people involved or, or even the robot. Yeah, uh, gosh, uh, where. I don't know the answers, but I know we're going to be facing an increasing number of questions. And, and there's a real example of what you just described. A few years ago, they had one of these mechanised military robots. Uh, I think it was in South Africa, actually. I'm not sure where, but it had a gun mounted on top of it, as they do now. And, and uh, uh, it was undergoing field trials somewhere, and it, it went nuts. And uh, it started firing willy-nilly and turning in circles, and I, I believe... You know, I'm not sure who was killed or injured, but instantly there's a big question, you know, who, who's responsible for that? Well, well, we know there's hard enough in human affairs when I've elected to do job A, but I'm depending on person B, and person B depends on person C, and then it's like a committee and no one's responsible. <laughs> it's, it's hard enough when it's humans involved, let alone a, a machine. Dave, yeah. what, what's your thought on this? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what Asimov had this idea that we were going to build, we we're going to have these rules for how we build robots and build these rules into robots about they can't hurt people and so forth. And so, therefore, if you built such a robot, then, then it's automatically... Is uh, it a solvable problem even? No, it's not really. No. And so we can see future court cases. I guess this is in an age of uncertainty. We don't really know what the effects of all of these things are going to be, do we? Because we're, we're kind of guessing. And a lot of time we don't even think about that very much. But one certainty is, I think, David, is yes, is that there will be court cases in the future where some sort of technology goes amuck in some way or other. And, and who owns it? Yeah, well, I mean, if a, if a plane on autopilot crashes, who's to blame? So I mean, the, 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 these are the sort of questions. It's the same thing. Uh, so if you build, and we do build increasing autonomy into our, into our machines and our robots and, uh, around us. And it doesn't really work, does it, to lock up a skin job in a prison cell for a few months? <laughs> no, it doesn't give us quite the satisfaction we want, does it? <laughs> well, there's no moral accountability no. there. They can just shut down their circuits for a few years or however long it takes and then we'll wake when it comes again. But, uh, Bruce, we started to touch on something here, and that is that we humans are introducing this technology at a blistering pace, yep. a bewildering speed, and even things like Twitter and Facebook and other social media and so on. And it does things to us that we don't really know in advance, and we, to some extent, don't even really think about it that much. Is that your, your take? It, it is. And, I mean, you only have to spend a few weeks in Silicon Valley to kind of get a sense of the cultural forces behind it. I always say that, you know, this, that when you look at the guys in Silicon Valley, and I love them to death, by the way, because I spent a bit of time there, and I love this entrepreneurial flair and can-do spirit of it. But it's also the Wild West and frontierism. They, they absolutely still leave, live this culture of, well, let's just do it, and then we'll sort out the regulations and the consequences later. They really do live that philosophy. And if there's even some fuzziness about breaking the law or, you know, with, say, intellectual property, or whatever. let's just do it anyway, make lots of money, and we'll sort that out on the way, you know, and they just forge ahead. Um, and if you look at, for example, like genomic medicine, you know, as a frontier, there are an awful lot of people doing an awful lot of fascinating things which will lead to uh, personalised uh, management solutions for cancers and all sorts of wonderful things. But, of course... The consequences, it's like, well, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead, let's just do it and do it happen. <laughs> we'll, we'll muddle along and make We'll muddle our way through. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, even, and even if we can predict the uh, consequences, can we actually do anything about it anyway? Yeah, well, we kind of, as we say, we muddle our way through. There are reactions to the negatives, but often the negatives arrive and then we react rather than, you know, this idea that we can plan for them and legislate and protect ourselves before they happen. No, we... We nowadays operate more along the lines of when the consequences hit us, then we'll react and, and sort it out. And, uh, uh, Bruce, um, that point about uh, the concept of control, I did find it really interesting. I mean, not only from um, those who remember the Skynet uh, technology that was supposed to be evolving over the uh, Terminator series, but even more recently, there is a lot of debate, particularly with weapons platforms such as, well, so-called autonomous drones, if mm. they see some kind of insurgent activity on the ground. Mm. And that is leading to enormous 
moral conflicts about at what stage do you uh, tell the drone, no, don't attack that group of people there, we, because you never know whether they're actually not uh, are civilians or, yeah. or, who, or whoever. And you know, the biggest paradox in that, um, or dilemma, I should say, probably more correctly, is that, um, you know, we can, we're, we're moralising about it, and the American people are moralising and, and arguing and debating these things at a level. But, of course, everyone's building drones to kill people as fast as they can and, and all over the world. So we moralise about it and, and, and we might delay or we might decide that what's right or wrong, but that's not going to stop a whole bunch of other people doing it any way they like. And, you know, some splinter cell of some terrorist group somewhere can get access to all the same technology and build drones. I, I know plenty of people that build drones in their backyards now for, uh, for photography and other things. And, uh, you know, building them and mounting a weapon on them is just a... It's a, it's a kit, really. Um, so we're going to face that whether we... Whatever the debate is, it's other people are going to do it if we don't. Yes, I think what, what, I, what I start to take away from all this is the illusion of control, that somehow we can control mm. our future and our world and our gratifications. If only we're smart enough, we build a smart enough piece of equipment. Uh, and I think at this point we're, we're running to the end now, so what I might do is a little heads up on a panel we've got coming up, Bruce, which you are, I'm delighted to say, you're going to be part of. And I'm hoping that David will come along and uh, as, as part of the audience and our fuzzy listeners. And this is a thing that we provocatively titled The Rise of Cyborgs and Post-Human Beings. <laughs> I can't wait for this one. It, it's going to be blasted. We have a top flight panel, including yourself, Bruce. We have a cochlear implant recipient. We have the director of the Bionics Institute from Melbourne coming up. And we have uh, Professor Bob Williamson, who is the head of the machine learning group at the NICTA Labs. And is, next week he's going to be launching a high-level initiative with people like Brian Schmidt, our Nobel Prize winner, on the cross-collaboration of the sciences. But on a panel, we're going to be exploring these topics in a bit more detail and things to do with cochlear implants, what do we do to help ourselves, can we augment ourselves in various ways, and where are we headed? It's a bit of a, 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 bit of a fun thing, trying to work out, trying to guess where we're headed as a, as a race. And I'm looking forward to that. That'll be on the 18th of August, Sunday, out at the John Curtin Medical School. And coming up oh, right today, in fact, the uh, the naturalist at the Australian Museum wrote this fantastic little story for our Ask Fuzzy column today about slugs. Uh, yes, slugs, not animatronic, but fully biological. And Martin Robinson, who we interviewed a while back, he had them in his shower cubicle eating the slime. <laughs> cleaning the slime mould off his shower cubicle by putting a little collection of slugs in there. That's pretty funny. And that's a great story in today's Canberra Times. Well, that's it today, and thank you very much for your time today, Bruce. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Fuzzy Logic. Uh, a pleasure to have you. And listener, get out there and buy this book, Skin Job. You can find it on Amazon, and you can meet Bruce and our other panellists at the John Curtin Medical School. And thank you also, David Dufty. Thanks, uh, Rob. And your book is still available, I hope, the Philip K. Dick Android. Uh, it's being re-released later this year. so That's a good sign, and it's in the United States as well. Yeah, yeah. under a different title, How to Build an Android. It's uh -huh. called there. Yeah. Put me down for a copy. Okay, <laughs> sure thing. Excellent, and we'll hope to see you. And good on you, Amon. Thanks for your company today. Cheers, Rob. Good to be here. Plenty more good fun stuff coming up here on Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. We'll catch you later.